Welcome back, everyone. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode number 128. Jared and I talked to Justin Searles about his work on Lyman.js, building JavaScript apps, and much more. Today's show is sponsored by CodeShip, PagerDuty, and Harry's. We'll tell you a bit more about PagerDuty and Harry's later in the show, but our friends at CodeShip, they're rock solid. Hosted continuous deployment service that just works. You can easily get set up with continuous integration for your app in just a few steps and automatically deploy when all your tests pass. CodeShip has great support for lots of languages, test frameworks, as well as notification services. They easily integrate with GitHub or Bitbucket and can deploy to cloud services like Heroku, AWS, Nojitsu, Google App Engine, and even your own servers. Setup is easy. It takes just three minutes. Get started today with their free plan and make sure you use our code, the Changelog Podcast. Again, that's the Changelog Podcast. When you use that, you're going to get a 20% discount for three months on any plan you choose. Head to coachship.io and tell them the Changelog sent you. And now, on to the show. Welcome back, everyone. We got a fun show lined up today. Today is. Friday, August 1st. We're actually broadcasting this show in particular live on 5x5. We don't always broadcast live, but today is it's just one of those days where we got to broadcast live. So um, I'm Adam Stachowiak. I'm joined by Jared Santo, our managing editor. So Jared, say hello. Hello, hello. And we also have our, our guest today on the show, Justin Serrells. Justin, how are you? I'm doing fantastically well, thank you. Fantastically well. What makes you fantastically well? Um, I am just really excited to have gotten over the hump on a dozen really annoying things that were on my plate this week after a two-week vacation. Wow. Yeah, I saw on Twitter you said you made it to Friday and you were celebrating. <laughs> yep. I celebrate yeah. every Friday, yes. Fridays you know. are good days. We, we end our sprints on Fridays. We started going to one-week sprints. So Fridays are good days. Is that working better? Were you doing two weeks previously? We were, yeah. We I think the, the shortness and the just... Uh, fast pace of of one week and it helps us bite-size things better gives Mm -hmm. us quicker iterations has really helped us out a lot um helps our planning process i don't know just it seems like we just get through that quicker and we give ourselves breaks you know once a month we'll give ourselves like a a week to kind of catch up and you know three weeks on one week off kind of thing so it's cool man it's been cool yeah a little sidetrack there dev talk (laughs) well justin we have you on the show uh uh we were uh to talk about lineman JS amongst other things, you've kind of been uh, maybe a pro- prolific would be the word uh, open source <laughs> contributor. Um, I first found you, I think, uh, because of some of your work with uh, Jasmine and some of the the testing tools that you've you've put out there. So I've been using those for a long time, but lineman seems to be um, a bigger project that you're 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 uh, building. And uh, appreciate having you on. Um, I, thank you. I kind of want to kick off the conversation with quoting you to yourself. Um, oh no, that's so always can, a good way. So you can defend yourself. Uh, no, uh, I, have, I I cannot warrant anything that past me said. Past me was not a smart guy. <laughs> but we have it on tape. We have it on oh. tape. So you have to stand by it. Um, you said, and this was recently. I think you even given talks on this. Uh, as, as recently as was it RailsConf 2014, hmm. where the title of the talk is, the quote that I'll say is that the rails of JavaScript won't be a framework. Um, obviously, we don't have time to go into your 30-minute discussion on that. I know you have tons of details um, around that sentence, but maybe just kind of unpack it for us. Tell us what that means and why you say that and then how it kind of led into Lineman, if it did. Yeah, so the, the talk is broken up into two parts. Uh, the first half is a discussion about uh, application development as it is, especially in this era where people are trying to build lots of, uh, you know, f- whatever you want to call them, fat client JavaScript applications meant to run in web browsers and then phone home to like, you know, a, a lightweight API on the back end. Um, so just a discussion of like, you know, what's what's painful about that if you're using something like Ruby on Rails, you know, the monolithic aspect, the fact that the sort of community has been uh, gradually moving to Node.js and, and Ruby gems aren't, you know, uh, a quite 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 so populated then the second half of the talk is like just like a basically like a a, a demo of how we've built lyman.js to alleviate all of those problems with monolithic rails application development um but the the pivot in the middle i guess is maybe what the what the title is referring to which is rails is um uh 
really fantastic for a couple of reasons. And I think that over the course of 10 years, what we've learned is that uh, some of the things that we initially loved about Rails turn out to not be fantastic for like long-term, long-lived projects. Um, you know, I break up Rails uh, responsibilities into sort of three categories. There's the uh, the build aspect, right? Like all the rake tasks, all of the confusingly uh, task-like things that you have to type Rails for instead of rake for. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> then there's the um, uh, uh, actual application framework. That's the, 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 the types that you're extending and the active support APIs that you can just kind of reach for wherever you are in your app. And so all the coupling between your custom application code with the framework code and all the lift that that gives you. And then in the middle is just like, uh, uh, sensible defaults that you don't have to specify and then conventions that we all just sort of follow socially. Like you learn about from a buddy or from a guide. Um, and, and as a result, we don't have to repeat ourselves from project to project and we don't succumb to, uh, what I might call like accidental creativity, right? Mm-hmm. Which you see in yeah. a lot of other communities where it's like, ah, I've got this 500 line long grunt file over here and I'll copy and paste it and I'll diverge it, you know, uh, inadvertently. Um, so, when I look back on my experience with Rails, the the real the hardest thing to learn, but the most valuable part was was sensible defaults and convention driven design. Um, the the application framework stuff has a lot of problems, uh, and the build stuff was really awesome in two thousand five, and it just has not progressed to to handle the sort of static assets we're building for the web very mm-hmm. well. Um, and so what I want to do is just like cargo call the really great stuff in the middle, and then apply that to uh, front-end web development. Um, and what I'm finding is like in the node community, that's like, that's, that's, that's news to them, right? Like they're, they're very kind of Unix velocity. You want lots of different, like a, an eclectic blend of tiny little modules to work with right. uh, as, as opposed to, you know, well, here's just like a default project. And then you can just specify how your project diverges from those defaults. Uh, so culturally it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, I feel like it's a point of friction, right? Like you got Rubyists on one side who understand this, but they they're very much tied up in the Ruby ecosystem and they don't want to leave it. And then you have like because Lyman's written in Node.js, you have Node.js on the other hand, where it's like all these people just like don't understand the cultural benefit of that, but they do have the technical tasks and tools to to get awesome stuff done quickly. So Lyman comes in to kind of like you said, cargo cult what you thought were the good ideas in Rails, bring them over to the front end. Um, via the command line and give that structure that we so desperately need. Is that what you're that, saying? That's my, that's my hope. And you know, in practice, at, at uh, our agency uh, test double, where we're like you know a consultancy who builds a lot of apps, uh, what we we've been using Lineman for for a couple of years now on most of our projects. And my favorite thing about it is very similar to my favorite things about Rails. Like I can hop into any one of our projects and I instantly know you know, how to run stuff, how to build stuff, how to get the test running. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I know that it's already set up for Travis CI out of the box and I can just push it. Um, I, I really love that uh, if I look at somebody's application config, I can just literally see like them declaring, these are the ways that I'm not normal. So I can understand what's unusual about their build and, and where their backends are and, and all their proxies and their server stubbing and stuff is all like, you know, really readily apparent. Um, in fact, if you want to uh, kind of broaden the discussion just a little bit beyond my tool. I, I got the chance to finally meet Tom Dale and Yehuda Katz in person this year. And as I've talked to them about their tri- trials and tribulations in selling Ember.js outside of the Rails community, uh, I feel like they're doing an analogous uh, 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 crusade from, from the Rails community's understanding of what makes a good application framework to, you know, no JS land or, or just to the web more broadly where people are kind of, you know, anti-frameworks because there's so much framework fatigue on the front end. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think that they're trying to accomplish a lot of the same things, especially when it comes to sensible defaults and, and common conventions, whereas my focus has been more on build tools as opposed to application framework design. Yeah, so Lyman itself, not a framework. It's a, it's a tool, and yep. it works with the front end frameworks that, you would want to use, whether it be Ember, Angular, uh, Knockout, perhaps, all of the, the popular JavaScript frameworks of the day. Um, so it's not actually trying to solve the application uh, framework problem or structure problem. It's actually trying to solve the build tools problem. It's a fair? single responsibility principle thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, if uh, when, you, when you say Lyman new project, it's going to assume you've got a totally vanilla JavaScript and CSS app and and... You just want to build it. But as soon as you say, like, well, I want to use Ember, 
then all you have to do is say npm tech tech save dev uh, uh, lineman ember and hit enter and it'll install you know a lineman ember plugin that will kind of behind the scenes totally dynamically without generating any cruft or crap in your project just modify the configuration and the tasks and the order that they run in so that now you're building an ember project um, and, and it's doing everything, you know, handle the templates appropriately and so forth. Uh, same thing with Lyme and Rails. If you want to like, you know, proxy back to a Rails application, our goal has been all along to like avoid code generation, but make it like dead simple to integrate with and build plugins for whatever, whatever you want on the top of the stack, whatever, whatever application framework you want. We want to be totally agnostic to that. Cool. So if you don't mind, I'd like to step back for a second. We'll get back to Lyman and the features and, and the details there. I kind of like to talk to you a little bit uh, from a consultant perspective. I also run a, a development firm. And at Test Double, you know, you're making the decisions on behalf of your clients, I assume, lots of times, which technologies to use, uh, which style of application they actually need, right? So we've seen this massive move towards rich JavaScript front ends, especially in the, you know, the edge of the development community. Um, there's lots of problems that can still be solved with traditional, you know, page-based or Rails, you know, application structure. Um, how do you decide when when your clients come to you? Is it just based on the needs of the app? And how often are a follow-up question? How often are you doing the rich JavaScript clients, and how often are you still doing traditional apps? That's a great question. I think that um, there's really a third category too. We, when you try to break it down to percentages of how we work, uh, okay. there's a third category too, which is like client already has a system and they right. need they need help. And uh, we're you know I think very pragmatic because what we want to be doing is uh, build trust with the client by meeting them where they are um, uh, and to choose our battles to choose to like you know take a stand only where making a change from their perspective is going to like, you know, they're going to appreciably benefit somehow. So sometimes like we're, we're working in really eclectic and weird, you know, environments. And we're totally cool with that because uh, if it's solving the problem uh, uh, as well and as efficiently as possible, and it's in a way that's copacetical with the client wants, that's great. But now to your question of like greenfield apps that we're just building. Most important thing to me is to understand uh, what are they trying to get out of the out of the application? Is is user experience really important? Like if they want to have a really fantastic, tight, crisp, enjoyable user experience because somebody's going to be in this application all day long, maybe working out of it, or maybe uh, on the other end of the spectrum, like it's a public facing application, they want to be really sexy and convert a lot of users and build a lot of affect and loyalty. Then it starts to sound like rich client might make a lot of sense because anything happening locally in your browser is a much tighter feedback loop and you have a lot more kind of UX uh, tricks in your toolbox. But mm-hmm. on the other, you know, on the other hand, if, if what they need is like they don't have a lot of money, uh, they, they don't have a lot that maybe they only have a handful of users and it's a, it's a seldom used app. Front end application development, like with JavaScript is like significantly more expensive. And I, right. I think that some people don't acknowledge that because they're so busy trying to sell browser as the runtime, everything's going this way, but you have to acknowledge like it's doing a lot more work. Like a backend rails app is like a specification of a user interface. We're just rendering some HTML. The browser is actually doing the UI programming, but like introducing a fat client application is just like a much more expensive thing. Cause now you're building two things. You're building an API application and you're building a fat client user interface application. Um, and, and I try to be as cognizant of the cost of that as possible in spite of the fact that I'm super duper excited about all the cool stuff you can do on the front end. Yeah. I think I fall in that, that, that same category where, um, you know, it depends obviously on the customer's needs and on the, the actual business goals of the application that they're building and their budget and all sorts of things like that. Um, oftentimes what I find is a very simple traditional web application, um, can serve companies quite well at first. Mm-hmm. And then, and you just kind of sprinkle in the JavaScript, you know, the interactions here, you know, make this uh, do that fancy thing. Um, maybe have some Ajax-based stuff, but still doing the traditional style. And then over time, it gets to the point where they just keep asking for more and more and more of that. To where, even if you've been pretty diligent, which I try to be, with the, the uh, structure of the JavaScript side of the application, which has been growing in, in line count, right? Yep. It gets to a certain point where it becomes not unmaintainable, but just not as efficient as if this would be, you know, an Ember app with a yep. with an API. Um, do you guys? And the ever, worst part. Do you ever the worst part that? about that. <laughs> yeah, the worst part about that particular phenomenon, right, is that. Um, let me phrase it this way: going back to sort of because uh, uh, um, was it 
Adam, you'd mentioned uh, that you just moved to one week sprints. We were talking about like agile stuff, right? So one of the, one of the one of my favorite agile dogmas is uh, uh, when you pull a story card and you're trying to implement it, do the simplest thing that could possibly work, right? Um, I think a lot of agile teams fall into this trap of uh, equating simplest with quickest to get done, right? And so yeah, that's the truth for sure. So quickest to get done is let's just spin up a Rails app, put a view on there, and then you know maybe iteration two, three, four, we start sprinkling on unstructured JavaScript and sort of like the, you know, the, 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 the front end equivalent of like one gigantic main method that we kind of like right. tease apart in an ad hoc fashion. Um, the, the problem with what I call like the simple, the simple trap is you're kind of going up this complexity hill in a monolithic way, uh, in a totally unstructured way from the front end perspective. And then all of a sudden you'll reach a point where it's just like, you can't go any further and they want features that would demand a, f- a fat client front end app. Like maybe it's a graphing tool and they want zoom and filter and all this stuff that you can't possibly rasterize on the back end. Uh, right. There's no, there, there's a huge chasm there. There's no logical way to take the stuff that you've already built and iterate further to where they need to go. You have to, you have to break that monolith up now <laughs> and, and do some amount of rework and, and build a new thing and breaking it up is really hard. And, and, rework is really hard, especially if somebody else is paying you for it and you're right. the one who recommended them that they go down that path in the first place. So of the Greenfield apps, what do you what, give me that percentage breakdown? Obviously just ballpark it, uh, new projects. How, how, how many are fat clients? Hmm. Of, our new, of our new projects, um, probably two thirds fat client, one third, uh, uh, all backend. <laughs> just like a API to a, uh, well, what do you mean well, all back end? Well, because as I think about it, I'm trying to think like when was the last time we had a client who who actually engaged us for a, a traditional like Rails view layer? Yeah. Um, I, th- I think maybe a fairer percentage would be say like 50-50, fat client web being 50%, and then the other 50 being a combination of just uh, like device integration, network integration, all back end services, and also maybe a little bit of rail- traditional Rails crud. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't see a lot of traditional rails crud anymore. Cause I think that the skills have commoditized a bit. Yep. Uh, and it's, you know, a lot of people can get by just fine on that stuff without needing to call for help. Right. Cool. Interesting stuff. I think, you know, those, those decisions, obviously as developers or as consultants, whatever role we play, we're making these decisions on which way do I go? So now let's get back into Lyman. Let's assume, you know, I'm, I'm convinced I need a, a JavaScript fat client. Lyman looks cool. Uh, Lyman says that its mission statement is to make fat client JavaScript web applications as easy to build as traditional server-side HTML web applications. That's your guys' goal. So what are the killer features? What makes Lyman awesome to work with? So um, caveat of uh, when you're the person who built the thing, you you, <laughs> you, you, you use the thing differently than, than anyone else will use the thing. Yeah. My usage patterns of Lyman are probably very different than... Uh, most of our users, but so I can only really speak for myself because I'm not very good at marketing this thing. Uh, I spent like a year and a half to, to, to build that talk that you referenced at RailsConf. Um, mm-hmm. My usage is I really like rapid prototyping new ideas quickly, right? So like, I previously have been using Rails for rapid prototyping, but when it came to JavaScript interactions, I love being able to say, Lyman, new, foo, create a new project I got to build already, and I can just start, start writing code and it's immediately showing up in a browser. Um, I like the consistency from project to project when we're all building Lyman applications. I like that we can take a common bit of uh, uh, one of our, uh, the biggest Lyman users is Rackspace. Um, so there's a group at Rackspace that's doing internal tooling. And one of the cool things that they can do is they have like a sort of standard stack of Lyman plugins and Lyman actually supports meta plugins too. So you could say like make a plugin called Lyman Rackspace and all it represents is like pulling in all of the plugins that it depends on at the versions that they specify and maybe any sort of deviations in configuration. So you could literally, as like an organization, just settle on like, this is our default, you know, initial project stack um, and be off to the races on a new project in like two command lines. Um, the other thing, the other kind of half to the equation, other than the fact that like what Lyman doesn't do, like unlike Yeoman, it doesn't generate a whole bunch of garbage into your project that you can't tease out later, can't upgrade later, or have to deal with, you know, a community that's not supporting your, 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 uh, bootstrap nonsense. Um, the other thing that, that I think is really great about Lyman is it 
you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater from a server side perspective. Like if I'm building a Rails application um, and I just want to, you know, do the next major feature on a standalone page as a lineman application, that would be a fat client JavaScript application. I can build that lineman application at in a world where that's the only thing that exists, totally separately, totally physically divorced. But then Lyman has features to proxy back to the Rails application easily. So like any request that Lyman doesn't know how to handle, it'll just phone home to Rails. Um, and uh, uh, that way you can develop against Lyman support, but still be inside of your Rails application and get all of the benefit without having to completely redesign your Rails application to be completely just like, you know, API, uh, API only, uh, or divorced from any hint of ERB or, or templates that drop in little JavaScript variables. So you can get up and running on almost any project immediately, even if it's a longstanding existing one. It's not only for Greenfield projects. Hmm. So do you just check that code into your main app then, or do you, have, do you keep separate repositories or either, I guess? Either it depends on you know a person's priorities. Uh, uh, if the if the team has already uh, figured out, cracked the nut on how to do deployments well with multiple repos at multiple versions, then this is just another repo. Uh, and it, just like you'd probably put your iPhone or Android application in a separate repo, um, uh, it can make sense to put your fat client JavaScript application in a separate repo because at the end of the day, that's all it is. It's just another client to your API. But mm. I think for most people, especially right out the gate. Um, because versioning is extra hard and because the deployment story can be more, more complex, just adding that to your repo as like a, another root directory is probably a okay. Um, and then on the, the, the benefit of doing it that way too, is that we have a, a gem for rails called rails lineman that you just, you merely install the gem and tell it where your lineman app is. And then whenever you run rake assets pre-compile, like as part of your deploy, it'll actually do a lineman build sneakily shove that into your public assets directory. And so you don't have to configure it, but you actually get kind of get all of Lyman's assets for free without having to think. Let's pause the show for a minute and give a shout out to a sponsor. If you've ever gotten to work only to find out something happened while you're out, the server's down, customers are unhappy, chaos everywhere, you got to listen up. One of our new sponsors, and I'm excited to have them on board, PagerDuty. PagerDuty eliminates the noise, chaos, and manual processes to help you streamline your entire incident lifecycle and ultimately decrease the amount of time it takes you to resolve issues. You can get reliable IT alerting and on-call management. You'll receive instant notifications when incidents are reported so you can quickly resolve those issues. They're trusted by companies like Etsy, GitHub, Nike, and we want you to try them for free. Sign up today for a free 30-day trial at pagerduty.com slash the changelog and tell them the changelog sent you. So you mentioned Yeoman briefly, mm-hmm. and it seems like if Lyman had a competitor, it would be Yeoman, uh, both tools trying to provide you know help for front-end projects. Um, Yeoman is a combination of Yo, which I believe, and you can correct me if I got details wrong, but this is a, a scaffold generator, a code generator. Grunt, which is the 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 uh, task runner mm-hmm. and then Bauer, I believe is, or the dependency management of some kind. I think it's Bauer. Um, how does Lyman compare to Yeoman uh, pros and cons of, of either side? Um, we have a, a, a table up uh, at LymanJS.com where I spent some time answering specific questions from the community about this. And I wish mm-hmm. I had it in front of me. Um, so, so go to LymanJS.com, check out the table for probably better answers than this. Okay. Um, but my, um, my off the cuff reaction is that, Yeoman misses some opportunities that Lyman seized upon, and it, it does some things that I think are very attractive for adoption purposes, mm-hmm. uh, but but long term have a poisonous effect on on the sustainability of projects. One of the opportunities that it failed to realize is that there is a higher order concern than simply running tasks. Uh, a build is really you know like a its own domain model. It runs tasks, but it has to figure out the order and when and how to do it in a, in a way that's like maybe, you know, um, uh, iterative. Like if like, say only one file changes, just compile that one file and find a way to graft it in as opposed to rebuild everything on every single file change. Mm-hmm, right. Um, so there's a whole bunch of build responsibilities that they just kind of left on the table. That's something like Joe Liss's broccoli tool was built to be. Um, the other aspect uh, uh, that, that stands to me about Yeoman that really bothers me is that it's got all of these community driven generators uh, for right. you. Like they've got this website that's like, you know, pick which of the 15 bootstrap three generators you want. If you want to pull 
like start a bootstrap project or if you want to start this project here. And some of them are in total disarray. Some of them are relatively maintained. Some of them are maintained, but they actually have like very weird or or incongruent opinions about how to do things well. Um, But all of them just generate a lot of cruft that you then have to commit into your repository. Uh, And when you do that, if you need to upgrade later, maybe none, almost none of those generators have clear, sane upgrade paths. So it's like you're making a project and it's like, at this point in time, this project will and forever will be, you know, tied to this version of this one particular tool because we chose to, you know, uh, get the convenience of an easy quick start um, yeah. uh, with without, you know, having to have paid the cost for a tool that sort of like embedded conventions for us. It just sort of handed all this stuff. Um, and that really... That, that really bums me out because when I see that, there's not a lot of help I can do for people other than recommend that they start fresh. Yeah, I've used Yeoman a little bit for a few small Angular apps, and I can definitely uh, – those statements resonate with me. I found your table, by the way, so just a few other things here that you missed. Uh, you provide HTML5 push date simulator mm-hmm. built in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think really the big differentiator from my perspective is the testing story. So mm-hmm. Lyman seems to provide for those interested in, in writing tests for their JavaScript, which is a pretty good idea if you ask me. Um, you have a test runner, you have API stubbing and stuff like that um, so that you can so you can easily get started testing. Can you talk about the how the test runner works? Yeah, so the, the test runner that we use is called Testum. Uh, and it was written by a, uh, a great developer down, I think he's in Atlanta. His name is Toby Ho. And uh, Testum is a uh, test runner that was written to be completely agnostic of the uh, test library. So you can use Testum with uh, uh, almost anything. You can use it with, obviously, QUnit, Jasmine, and Mocha, the big three. Uh, you could use it with Casper. You could use it with with, with almost anything you want on, on the library end. Uh, and then on uh, the other end, it, it's able to capture lots of different browser environments with a little tiny script and some socket IO. Uh, so you can easily run uh, your tests in any browser you like, like, uh, uh, you know, whether that's IE, Safari, Firefox, or, or what have you, or, or mobile browsers or different devices on your network, if you have a device lab and so forth. And uh, it does all of this with a very sexy uh, curses-like terminal UI that lets you, um, like, you know, Arrow between the different the different user agents that are running your tests. You can see how the uh, error messages might differ from one to the next, hmm. um, and then it, it sort of ties a bow around all that with a very nice uh, CI mode. So this is all the interactive mode, but in the CI mode, it'll run under Phantom JS and it'll give you you know any format you want, like whether you want the JUnit style XML formatting or whether you want TAP formatting, uh, so that you can you know aggregate those results in your CI system. Uh, so Testum is really like they. Toby did 100% of the heavy lifting there. What Lyman does, just like it does with all of its grunt tasks that it runs and everything else, is it just provides a default configuration that just works out of the box. Um, and, and this is maybe a little selfish, but I also shove all of my um, uh, Jasmine test helpers that I've built over the years into your helpers directory for you right off the gate. Um, and I do that because I use them and I was sick of downloading them, but hopefully you know, people find some benefit from that as well. Cool. Yeah, that leads me to my next question because uh, you know, talk about downloading uh, helpers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. The other, but another big differentiator, Yeoman. You know, the third part of that would be Bower, which is you know, a, it's not really a dependency management, but it's a downloader, so to speak. Um, Lyman seems to just completely punt on package management. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, <laughs> is that purposeful or it is got, purposeful? Got tired. It's uh, it's very intentional, and I think that it's uh, I, a couple of years ago now. I wrote a blog post called "Unrequired Love" about Required JS, um, and how I think that in open source, my goal has always been to identify areas of pain and then mm-hmm. think really hard about why am I feeling that pain, and then and then sit and then think really hard again, and then eventually start writing tools to alleviate that pain somewhat. And I feel like the obsession with front-end package management tools, whether it's Require or Browserify, or to the extent that people use Bower as a dependency management tool, when I agree with you, it's not really. It's more like a very fancy downloader. Right. Um, what I worry is that they're identifying the pain of, I've got all of these third-party scripts everywhere, but then they, they apply the wrong prescription, which is, let's give me something to manage all of these third-party scripts. When, when a better prescription would be, let's write leaner, meaner applications that don't, you know, that are architected well enough that we can solve a lot more of our own problems without immediately leaning on a bajillion, you know, yeah. shitty JavaScript plugins everywhere. Right. Um, and 
also from the from the from the app code perspective where you know there's a lot of people who are using packaging tools to kind of organize and require uh, explicitly their own code uh, uh, you know like say like I've got uh, a model that my view wants to use or require that model from that view there's nothing wrong with that it's just it's not built into JavaScript it's not you know part of the language and it's not something the browsers understand yet and so you're kind of marrying yourself to this one-off implementation that will probably look silly two, three, four years from now, um, when you could just solve it the way that, you know, by respecting what a JavaScript web application really is, which is the, you know, it is equivalent to the concatenation of all of its listings. So just right. know how to concatenate it right, and then you're done. And better yet, write code that is order agnostic and design systems that don't matter what order you load stuff in. So then you don't have to even worry about what order it gets concatenated in. Um, those are the ways that we've tried to solve those problems. Now, people like to use Bower. We have a Lyman Bower uh, extension um, that, that, that you can use with Lyman. But I personally have been frustrated by it for, for a lot of reasons. One is that it, it, by default, will go and grab master of your GitHub repo. Uh, and that's not a release, right? It's got a right. version probably in a file somewhere. Uh, but it's it's going to be divergent from the release, which has caused a bunch of my friends who maintain libraries to freak out because now they're getting all these issues filed against stuff that's happening in master uh, when people are just grabbing the wrong artifact. Uh, mm. it, it encourages organ, uh, uh, like uh, open source maintainers to start committing generated artifacts and then track that separately. So then the source of truth of like, it is just counter diversion control in my opinion. Um, and then the worst part, kind of belies your first statement, which is, well, it's not a dependency management tool. It's a downloader. Like the fact that it seems like a dependency management tool gives everyone a false sense of confidence that it's doing things like, you know, negotiating uh, version conflicts and transitive dependencies, uh, uh, you know, that it, that every single time you download a specific version of a dependency, you're getting exactly the same one like you would be from NPM or from Ruby gems. Yeah. You're not. And so, those people using Bower are like, well, don't commit your, your vendor dependencies because you have a Bower, like part of your build will just pull those in and then you'll do a build and then they'll just be kind of transient. Um, it's, it seems totally backwards to me that Yeoman on one hand will generate all of this cruft that is literally your application forever uh, that you don't need and that you can't upgrade. Uh, uh, and then on the other hand, not commit the actual stuff that's like literally your runtime, <laughs> this, the system that you're building uh, that, that isn't controlled by you, shouldn't be controlled by you. So I, th I feel like it's just coming at a lot of these issues from diametrically opposed perspectives. Yeah. Yeah, and so what do you do then? You just like w get the file into a vendor, and then you just—I mean, just old school style. Old school, man. And yeah. It, it it you know if it if it doesn't hurt or if it's not broke, don't fix it. I I just have not run into the problems of scale that some other people I've talked to had. Like you know, basically anytime I get into a fisty cuffs internet fight with somebody about this, they eventually pull out like, well, my app is eight megabytes of compressed JavaScript, so I have these problems. I'm like, okay, cool, but don't turn around and like offer this as generic advice of like best practices that everyone should be doing because mm -hmm. whether, whether that was a necessary eight megabytes of complexity, which I doubt um, or, or not, it just not representative of most web applications. It's a problem you can push off till later. And every time I see people try to adopt it on day one, whether it's Browserify, Require um, uh, or even Bower, it just introduces all of these stupid engineering problems that are a distraction from the goal of building an application and, and Lyman is all about getting up and running and building an application quickly and not having to worry about those stupid engineering problems, like they like build, get focusing on your build and so forth. Um, and, uh, it seems to just not respect the cost of that. Right on. So Lyman, you know, Lyman JS, interestingly, the name is Lyman JS, but if you go to GitHub and you click on the language statistics, uh, 59% coffee script, 40% JavaScript, but I can't actually find where that JavaScript is coming from. It seems like it's all CoffeeScript. I think it's probably like a, uh, in the archetype, uh, which is the project that gets generated when you Lyman new, there's okay. JavaScript in that. Uh, I like, thought maybe there was some sort of thing that was automatically built that had the JS in it or something. No, and, and in fact, uh, you know, I understand why um, there's a... First of all, there's the natural reticence to CoffeeScript in the, in the broader outside of Ruby community. Yeah. Because it's different uh, and it's non-standard and it is, uh, you know, it looks foreign if you've not used a dynamic language before. And it looks for, foreign to some Rubyists who've never used a white space sensitive language before. Um, personally, I'm sold because I've, 
you know, there's myriad benefits that we could talk about separately. But um, the things that are important to me is I want to write code that's as clear and as reliable and understandable and maintainable as I possibly can, because maintaining open source is hard. But I want to be handing people code that they can run with and and easily understand uh, and make sense of. And so when you install uh, Lyman and then run a, um, you know, Lyman new and make a project, everything is all JavaScript. No coffee script gets generated unless you use the tech tech coffee um, uh, option to, to, to convert all of that to coffee script for you. Um, and so I feel like it's a kind of a straw man argument. You're not the first person to bring it up. Some people have literally been like, I won't use this because it was written in coffee script. And that just seems to me like that's a, coming from a point of entitlement, right? Like I refuse to spend the 30 minutes it takes to learn CoffeeScript because right. it's really a very, very tiny language when you think about it. And therefore your thing sucks and we should all not contribute to it and we shouldn't use it. Right. Plus, as you say, this is a tool that you use and as an end user, it's complete, it's a nothing to you whether what it was written in, right? It's right. generating JavaScript for you. It's a command line tool. Um, it shouldn't matter. That being said, like, <laughs> as you said, some people, uh, you know, they're very averse to CoffeeScript. Have you gotten a lot of that kind of feedback with Lyman? Maybe even on the con- contribution side, how's the, the contributors worked? Uh, contributors have been fantastic. I mean, I always want more of them. Uh, I guess I'll break that up into two questions. First on contributors, I feel like because we've been using this every day for two years on almost all of our client projects, uh, Lyman solves the problems I needed to solve. And it is mature from my perspective. I mean, we never did a 1.0 release, but it does almost everything I need pretty well. And there's things I want to fix, like there's rough corners, but I can live with them pretty well. Um, and so when people open issues uh, or have problems, I would really love if they would more often contribute uh, to the project because it's their, their itch is not my itch. And so I could half-heartedly go and try to build it for them. Um, but, but really there's... Uh, just sort of a depression that sinks in when you realize that you're spending a lot of time just trying to make other people happy on the internet for free, uh, just like arguing on the internet. And uh, uh, it bums me out when people kind of like open an issue from 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 a from a state of entitlement, uh, like, "Hey, your thing's dumb because it doesn't do this." And then I I get the thing in my inbox and realize I'm blocking somebody and I feel really guilty and I feel beholden to them to like you know go implement that thing uh, when mm-hmm. you know. N- 90% of people never even offer or think to open a pull request. Um, that just, that, that bums me out. And now I've forgotten the first half of the question that I also was excited. Oh, to just if you have a lot of you know, so-called haters because of oh, the copy yeah. script. Well, I think there's an interesting point to this too, which is that, uh, coming from the Ruby community where like, I think that like, I see the same hundred, 150 people at all of these Ruby conferences across literally the world. It's a much, much smaller, tighter knit uh, community. And as a result, we kind of all like, you know, there's a monoculture aspect to that, you know, we, Hive we, mind, we, yeah. yeah, we have d- debates and arguments, but then things settle down and we either separate into camps or we just sort of adopt the new, the, the new way you can't do that with JavaScript because everybody is stuck with JavaScript. The whole world is writing JavaScript and they're all from these different tribes and these different heritages and different backend environments. And so a lot of times I'll see people, whether it's from Ruby or Python or, or .NET or Java, they will enter the JavaScript world with nothing but the perspective of their backend experience. And then they'll immediately freak out because the, the, they can't see any agreement. Like what's the right way to do X, right? What's what's the standard way to do Y? And the answer is like, of course, there is no right way. There is right. no standard way. Um, and and you have to kind of identify just to signal to noise, you know, manage your life. <laughs> you right. have to identify a group that, that seems to agree with you well enough that you can be productive. Uh, and one of the ways that I have sort of self-selected a group when I'm working on Node.js stuff is if somebody comes to me and says that because I write CoffeeScript, I'm... My project's dumb and I'm dumb too. I'm like, boom, bozo button. I don't, yep, you're, you're out of my tribe. The world is much too big, right, for me to feel like I have to make absolutely everybody happy. Please tell me you have a real bozo button. I was going to say, I like that button. I want that button. Uh, I Well, I, I tapped on the lid of my water bottle when I said it. So <laughs> that'll be the new bozo button, I guess. I'd love to have a that. real one. Yes, right? And it just like automatically blocks them on Twitter and uh, uh, GitHub. <laughs> It could be an API, API and everything for it. Yeah, yeah. 
I love this because you know open source is so interesting. We have you know the techn- we have the purely technical aspects of it, right? Which we can talk yeah. about all day long yeah, and debate course. and uh, evaluate and improve and all that. And then you have the social meta kind of like the people of open source and all of the interesting and, and troublesome uh, situations that arise around that. Um, then you have the corporate the corporate aspect where we see more corporate backing of open source. Um, licensing, like there's all these kind of conversations around open source that we can have and we do have. Um, and Justin, you have a talk that's coming up. You've been you've been working on it. You have an abstract called the Social Coding Contract, which I think speaks into this milieu of the uh, the community, the open source community, especially in in the world that you run, which is really the Ruby and JavaScript communities specifically. Um, I'll just pull a quote. You sent this to us. I'd love to talk about it a little bit here. I'll pull a quote out of this. It's probably not going to get a gist, but it's my favorite paragraph. And you say, sometimes I swear I can feel a teetering sensation from how precariously our applications are perched on top of an ever-growing web of open source dependencies. Fears that our tech stack is about to topple over have been fomenting in recent years, but are those fears founded? That's kind of the question you pose. Um, you have a specific scenario which kind of leads to this. Go ahead and, and speak into that and, and and tell us your thoughts on this. Yeah, so I think the zeitgeist uh, right now is a little bit cynical, uh, at least among the people that, that that I follow on Twitter and that I that that I engage with in the community. Is that we've been on this sort of we've been riding this rocket of ever increasing convenience in the open source world. It used to be the case that open source was a pain in the ass and you had to be really thoughtful when you pulled in an open source dependency, not just like legally, but like literally like pre GitHub, pre all of these cool dependency managers. Like I remember like the pain, even in 2004 of getting a jar and getting that jar to like in my class path and working in my Java project correctly. Whereas like mm-hmm. Ruby gems made it quite a lot easier. Bundler made it easier. Still uh, NPM makes it like almost, comically easy to both publish you know dinky little scripts and also to consume them um we're so from a package management perspective it's easier and easier to slurp in new dependencies uh and it's easier and easier to publish new ones and so um because there's so many solved problems out there and no one wants to feel like they're reinventing the wheel every single application becomes a a a kind of defined by the 15 totally disparate things that it stands on top of and those things are maintained by, for the most part, white dudes in their 20s doing it in their spare time who might you know, probably have a 40% chance of never committing to that thing again, right? Mm-hmm. And that is what runs the world software. You know, that's, <laughs> that's what runs pretty soon, you know, real-time systems even. Not, like I've got several friends who work in real-time systems. This trend mm-hmm. is coming to real-time systems, things that run hydroelectric jams, things that run airplanes, right? Those embedded devices are getting so strong now that they can realistically run, you know, uh, if not dynamic languages, certainly stuff like Rust and Go and that, that's been brought up in this culture mm-hmm. of, of, of convenient uh, uh, open-source grabs. Meanwhile, we're seeing like in the news constantly – all these open source projects that literally 80% of servers rely on be like, oh, there's a gigantic security hole and everything we thought was secure for the last 10 years on the internet wasn't. Oops. Uh, We have all of these, basically like you could almost just paint uh, your application as a graph of single points of failure. Like here's all of the millions of things that could go wrong (laughs) that could break us. And we don't understand any of them because our understanding stops as soon as we've typed the name of the gem into our gem file or the name yeah. of the package into our package JSON. And so the, the thrust of the talk is like not that this is necessarily bad and we're all doomed. It's that users, have, I think, have a much greater responsibility to understand what dependencies they're pulling in, who's man- maintaining them under, you know, what pretenses, uh, uh, not just how, how it's licensed, but how is it being built? Like, is it, is it, is there a healthy community around it? Um, is it, is it small enough to not be an albatross, but is it big enough to have the gravitas necessary to be able to rely on, you know, stable releases and and fixes in the future? And Mm -hmm. I think most users have kind of just lowered their standards over time as the convenience has gone up from companies like that use open source. Like you mentioned companies, companies have a similar responsibility. Like they're getting a tremendous lift, a huge amount of free value from open source. And, and 
if I think of my friends who work in enterprises, they have carte blanche ability now to, to use whatever open source they like. Maybe they have to run a license by a lawyer or something. But then like if they try to spend two hours to submit a patch, it's it's, you know, basically they have to either use vacation time and then still talk to the lawyers uh, or, or they just, you know, don't and, and can't. And I think that corporations that are using open source and getting all of this tremendous value from it have a responsibility to give back something. And I don't know exactly what that is yet, but that's some, some of the stuff I'm going to be chewing on for the talk. But the, hmm. maybe the more interesting part to me, because I'm more, I, you know, I publish a lot of open source and not everyone does, is I want to kind of peel the curtain back a little bit into just like, what's the psyche of an open source maintainer? And yeah. for me, the, the saddest thing about it is that I build tools to solve problems that I have and I get some day one gratification of like, man, I just solved that problem that I had. I granted, I spent all day on a tool to solve the problem when I could have solved the problem some other way in 30 minutes, but you know, now I've automated it and that's fantastic. But then days like two through N of the project are, well, I had that first problem, but now almost all of my problems are maintaining this thing that solves that same problem for other people into perpetuity. And when you build a thing because you wish it existed in the world, you don't get to enjoy it the same way as if it had already existed because hmm. you have to maintain it and you have to worry about it and you have to you take the heat when it doesn't work out for some stranger on the internet. Um, and all of those things really contribute to the sort of burnout that we see in open source. Yep. Um, and, and that burnout feeds directly into the instability of all the dependencies that we stand on. So there's just this uh, healthy, unhealthy burning of the candle at both ends that's going on. Uh, and it's structural. And we have to really think radically, I believe, to, to figure out what's a sustainable way forward um, for all of these shared tools. Because granted, everyone, no one wants to have to like, you know, resolve all the same problems in every single enterprise and just sort of have like this big, nasty, dark closet of, of wheel reinvention, uh, because that's, you know, similarly hugely error prone. But there's got to be a better way uh, to to sort of just find like that's why i called it the social coding contract like we have to find some sort of like you know cultural mores to um shift both our expectations as users and also how we view uh maintainers they are not these superheroes that that have like a bajillion stars on github and have figured out how to do software they're mostly just mm -hmm. people who published a thing and it got popular and now their life is dominated by that thing <laughs> let's pause the show for a minute give a shout out to a sponsor this sponsor is Harry's, and for many of us, man or woman, shaving is an absolute pain. It sucks. It's uncomfortable. Nicks, cuts, scrapes, razor burn, plus the razor blades today, they're just crazy expensive. And that's where Harry's comes in. They started by two guys who wanted a better product for shaving without having to pay an arm and a leg to get it. Harry's makes their own blades, and they ask, why pay 32 bucks or more for an eight-pack of blades when it's just half the price with Harry's. On average, an everyday shaver saves about 150 bucks a year on blades using Harry's. To wrap it all up in a nice pretty bow, satisfaction is guaranteed. Visit harrys.com right now and Harry's will give you $5 off if you use our special code CHANGELOG with your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com and enter the coupon code CHANGELOG at checkout and you get $5 off. Start shaving better today. Wow. So do you have any radical ideas, or are you just kind of broaching the topic at this point, saying this is something that we need to talk about? Um, I, I have some, but they're probably too early to speak with with any confidence. I think that the, um, the overarching message is going to be that, that both parties need to meet in the middle, Right. Users mm -hmm. need to have a deeper understanding of what they're using. You need to like default to open up source and look at how the source works and contribute back a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. cause only through having the deeper understanding of what you're on top of, could you ever hope to contribute? There's like this demystification that occurs when you actually look at the source of the thing. You're like, Oh wow, that guy, was, that guy was a human. Huh? I thought it was magic. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there was a real moment in my, you know, technical career as a software developer where I went from being like too afraid to do that mm. to like be, that becoming my the first thing I do almost immediately. Sometimes to a fault where I'm like I'm going to blame this dependency when really just my code has got a bug in it. But <laughs> but like I agree with you absolutely like you, as users of open source like we should be hopping into that and being able to 
diagnose or try, right? It's difficult for beginners to do those kind of things. But, um, you know, the, the earlier and sooner you do it and, and, and dive into the mucky muck, so to speak, the sooner you realize, like, it's not magic in here. This is this black box has parts that make sense and some don't work and some do. And, and you grow as a developer as part of participating in that process. I think that's changing though. I think for beginners that's, that's changing because of the source being so pointed to and pull requests being so social. Now I think that's, that's beginning to evolve. I think people are becoming more and more aware that their first resource should be not just asking your buddy, Hey, how does this work? Or, Ask the maintainer, hey, where's the API for this or the docs for this or whatever? It's like digging into the actual code themselves. Mm-hmm. It's becoming – I think that that thought, Jared, is kind of evolving a bit. I agree that it's evolving a bit, and I think that GitHub and pull requests um, have helped. But one of the things that's actually, I think, kind of unfortunate is that our tools have taken several steps back. Like I talk about just – focused on Ruby and JavaScript today, say like Ruby's debuggers aren't fantastic. Um, Ruby offers a lot of introspection capabilities of like what's going on in the runtime, but not a ton of introspection about like, where's this source and what is it and how do I open it? Um, uh, Node is about a bajillion times worse than this uh, because uh, debugging, you know, what's going on under the covers is, is notoriously difficult uh, to the point that, you know, the operational standard in Node is like, oh, well, yeah, every, every single Node process leaks memory like a sieve. So just make sure that operationally you can bounce those servers whenever you need to. Um, and and it really starts to feel after a while like a black box, like what's going on under here. So. I guess, I mean, one, one approach would be invest the time in tools that make that, that lower that, that barrier of entry to, to hop over into the source code or even mm-hmm. just to like exclaim and visualize it and put it in your face even when you don't ask it to. So that like, you know, sort of like code folding, right? In browser, in yep. editors. What if you could just like every time you called a third party API, you could unfold that code and see the source of that method, like in every editor. That, that sort of stuff would just dramatically, I think, uh, uh, increase the level of engagement from users. Yeah, absolutely. You think perhaps languages um, like Go and, and Rust have easier time developing those kind of tools than we would have in, in our communities just because of the nature of the languages. Um, it seems like this this thought kind of came into focus, you said, when uh, you took over RSpec Given recently mm-hmm. after, Jim, after Jim Wyrick's death. I know you are a huge fan of Jim Wyrick. Um, can you speak to that, kind of the, the process of taking over and just uh, anything you like to about Jim? Yeah. Um, so I've taken uh, over the project with uh, another wonderful fella named Doug Elkhorn. He's at Gaslight Software in Cincinnati. Um, and I've only, we've taken it over in name only. Uh, we, we haven't yet actually started digging into the code and starting to work through the backlog of issues. Um, but it's funny because we started this process like five months ago and we only like got Ruby gems access a few weeks ago and we were only able to announce it like last week. And a big reason for that was, uh, a combination of, of situational problems that are very common. Um, uh, I believe that like, a Jim didn't specify this kind of stuff in a will, right? Like, right. like who's the executor of my open source cache? Like who runs rake now? Right. Uh, yeah. and as the world ages, as like all this open source is around longer, we're going to have to deal with this. Like literally, like you need a living will for your open source. You need to specify whose copyright it is if, if you die and, and who can maintain it because places like GitHub, we have since learned will require stuff like that legally before they can just hand you a repository. Hmm. Uh, it's not enough that the guy passed away. Um, uh, so a lot of other services are, are, you know, very accommodating, but, uh, you know, maybe have a like less rigor about that kind of thing. But then at the same time, they're also operating on shoestring budgets and they just can't handle the, 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 the volume of customer help requests that they have. So like Ruby gem specifically, they don't have the funding to, to spend a ton of time on support. And so it took quite a while to get uh, feedback from Nick and Evan about, about how to move forward. Uh, so, so situationally that was, that was painful. Um, I think, I think just structurally, what I worry about is that we, we just aren't geared for, for sharing dependencies with other people, sharing control with other people. I guess the other half of the talk to get, to give you sort of like, we talked about the the user responsibility. The other half Mm -hmm. of the talk is like maintainers generally built their stuff to solve their own problem. And when somebody else wants to help, they're, they're, they're solving a slightly different problem. They're solving a a, a variation on the problem that the 
color is colored by their perspective. And as a maintainer, I don't want to cede control to that guy because he's going to like, you know, if he's really active, he's going to kind of pull the project away from my center of gravity towards where he wants. Maybe it's how he codes things or it's, maybe it's what it does and how it does what it does. And so I think a lot of uh, uh, open source maintainers, even though they're great people, tend to be kind of control freaks because they've been burned, you know, however many times with pull requests that introduce bugs that then they have to maintain and so forth. Um, but but I keep seeing all these projects that have literally one contributor on them. Uh, and my goal is to try to discourage that uh, in my own work uh, and, and try to pull in additional contributors and try to more actively solicit people for help. Not just because I'm, I, I don't want to spend the time working on it constantly, uh, that would be great, but because uh, I, it is more stable the more people have access and control to things uh, and have had eyes on it. You know, I have never read, read RSpec given 2.0's uh, source code. I was familiar with 1.0, but 2.0 was a rewrite. So I'm going to have to go in basically with no help uh, and totally figure it out soup to nuts. And if I'd spent just a little bit of time pairing with Jim and he had an open offer on the table for me to pair with him on it, uh, uh, which I obviously regret not taking him up on, uh, yeah. now I'm totally on my own. Um <laughs> to say nothing of how important, you know, his documentation is going to be to me, which is another area where a lot of open source falls short. Mm-hmm. Um, so that project in particular, I love it because it's just, uh, Jim gave several talks on RSpec given. If you have any familiarity with RSpec or with BDD style unit testing, uh, I think that given is a uh, really, really thematically honest, conceptually pure way to write unit tests. Um and it, it has a lot of benefits that are just not obvious at first blush. At first blush, it looks like, oh, these are just aliases to give in and before each and so forth like that. It's just more DSL kind of, you know, machinations. But when you really dive in and you realize, like, the, the how the structure of the tests becomes much more clear and the uh, the additional tools that it gives you with using less fewer keywords, uh, it's a fantastic tool. And, and I've got a port called Jasmine Given that does the same thing for Jasmine, which is why I've got the interest in maintaining both going forward. Um, but anyway, yeah, I love the tool and, and, uh, you know, speaking on Jim a little bit more broadly, uh, my goal is to be more like him in how I carry myself in the community. And I, I feel like a lot of people have said that after he passed away, Jeff Casimir tweeted right after Jim passed that, um, no matter who you were, uh, or, or, or what your idea was or what you had to say, or whether Jim had, had, had learned that thing that you learned, uh, hundred years ago, he treated you like you were fascinating and he, uh, uh, got excited for your excitement. And he just had so much joy in his heart that he couldn't wait to share with whoever was around him. And he was so welcoming, um, that even when, you know, he was a well-rounded guy. I mean, he got mad at stuff. I think one time he said that you, you've never really understood a dependency until you've come to hate it. Um, (laughs) he, he, he could be biting, like I, 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 this is several years old now, but like when he gave me criticism about, about uh code that I wrote or how I wrote it, uh, you know, I wanted just like, you know, you know, that, 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 uh, uh, that image was like, you know, lie down and ball, try not to cry, cry uncontrollably. Like I, like it was really, uh, uh hit my ego hard, but the reason he, he was, uh, uh, so, 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 I guess why it hurt me so much was because it was so true. And his, his feedback was so crisp and so grounded in just mm. so much expertise and so much wisdom that he'd, he'd, you know, he didn't get that wisdom because he was older and he'd been programming a long time. He got that wisdom because he was incredibly thoughtful and introspective and careful. And he managed to have both that aspect, which I, which, uh, you know, I try to pride myself on, but also this ability to very gracefully meet people where they are and get inside of their heads. And, um, that's something that that I think that all of us could you know do a better job with, and it just makes me really sad we're not going to be running into him at all the conferences throughout Ohio from now on. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, speaking of Jim, the, the Ruby Rogues did a, a a great tribute episode. I don't know if you heard that or not. Episode one fifty one. Look it up while you're talking there. Uh, the Ruby Rose talk about Jim and all the impact he had on them. He had such a dramatic impact on so many. It's just amazing how many people even though it's a small community that he specifically touched um, a huge loss uh, to the Ruby community. Well, Justin, uh, I think that's a good place to wrap. Appreciate you coming on. We're excited about Lyman and what you're uh, doing there. I've used it a little bit. I'm excited to use it on some more projects. 
And uh, thanks for coming on and talking to us. Right on. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate being here. And if anyone has any questions at all, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or I'm Justin at testdouble.com. And specifically with Lineman, like we don't have an IRC or anything. So if you have a question or something's confusing, just open a GitHub issue. It's not just about this code doesn't work. We just want to have the conversation uh, in, in one place and, and help, help everyone out. Awesome. Well, we'll be back next week and let's all say goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs> so long. <laughs>